0: Welcome to the Open and Resilient Podcast where we empower business leaders to focus on what actually matters, rather than the pain of IT. I'm your host, Greg Mater. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Open Source Integrators. Today, I'm speaking with Bob Lewis, author of the Keep the Joint Running and IS Survival Guide columns. He's the author of 12 books and over 1,700 columns. His latest book, is there's no such thing as an IT project, a handbook for intentional business change. I love this book. There's certainly some ideas I, I want to talk about from this book, but everything Bob's written, I, I found to be incredibly valuable. So thank you for being on today, Bob.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: The question I ask everybody, what's your favorite snack food?
1: Malted milk balls. Is there any other possible can today?
0: Really? That's interesting. A particular brand, Whoppers, some other brand, or.
1: Well, actually, there's a, a local store here in the Twin Cities area called We Are Nuts, and they do a um, dark chocolate covered malted milk ball that um, I have no idea where they manufactured the things, but they're fantastic.
0: My wife was once attacked by a, a squirrel in the winter at the University of Minnesota campus while she was eating malted milk balls. Uh, the squirrel was in a desperate situation and wanted those malted milk balls more than my wife did. So she threw them to the ground and ran away. So that, <laughs> that connects malted milk balls in Minnesota.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that.
0: <laughs> I'd be remiss if I did not include that. Rhonda listens to these and. shit like Okay. For
1: that. I hope she was able to replace the malted milk balls and wasn't too badly injured by the salt squirrel.
0: Yes, she's she's good there. Tell me a little bit about how you got to this place in your career, Bob.
1: I don't have the faintest idea. It just—I woke up one day and here I was. The how did I get here? Way back when I was a little bit frustrated with the company I was working for. They were on their 37th management fad and counting. And I've been sent to seminars on every one of those fads. And so I wrote a book titled Total Quality for Cement Heads, which I then sent to various publishers, all of whom had a very similar response. love the book. Who are you and why would anybody want to read anything you have to say? And so that book got withdrawn, but a lot of the ideas behind it stayed with me. So the key to my success way, way back when was that I subscribed to CompuServe. And this is back pre internet, at least pre popular internet. And my frustration with CompuServe was that I had nobody to send an email to. And I was back then, email was like for the cool kids, or at least the cool nerds. And uh, I was also an InfoWorld subscriber, and InfoWorld had a guest column at the time called Peer-to-Peer, and the way you submitted a guest column was, tra-la, by email, and they had a CompuServe address. So I uh, wrote a piece that uh, assaulted the Gartner Group's total cost of ownership formulation, and uh, they printed it under the inflammatory headline Lies, damned lies and statistics, something funny with Gartner numbers. Uh, Gartner challenged me to debate them, which I did at their annual symposium, and hilarity ensued, and somehow of the veteran into a career.
0: It, it's interesting, actually doing homework and having an opinion based on homework seems to actually be relevant now more than ever. You maybe pioneered a bit of that for the rest of us.
1: What a scary thought that is. I've always thought that my my approach to this was to uh, do uh, just enough research to be vaguely credible, but mostly I'm guilty of what I accuse everybody else of, which is using research as a uh, search for ammunition instead of illumination. And I try to avoid that, but it's very hard to, but I do at least enough research that I uh, there's some basis for at least many of the things that I write.
0: I'm going to jump a little bit to what I think the outcome of some of your work leads to. This idea of the culture of honest inquiry. And as I was rereading your latest book, one of the things that really stood out to me was the idea that uh, you start with the decision process, not a decision. A good friend of mine named George actually has a very similar idea. Is you don't have to trust the individuals if you have a process that you can trust. So how did you stumble on this and where does this fit?
1: I stumbled on this and I I actually don't remember exactly what we were selecting, but it was a software selection process way back when, early in my career. The first meeting, unsurprisingly, you know, the old stages of team formation, storming, forming, norming, performing. It was an advanced organization. So we always skipped the forming part and we got right into storming. Basically the first couple of meetings were nothing but arguments and they were arguments about um, whose preferred solution was the better solution. And somewhere in there, uh, uh, probably just out of frustration, I asked everybody to uh, call a halt to the arguing for a minute and instead asked them, how are we gonna make this decision? And strangely enough, while we were completely incapable of having a productive conversation about what the better solution was, we were quite capable of having a very productive conversation about how to make the decision. Basically, what what are the requirements of multiple categories, uh, relative importance of each of those? How are we going to tell? And then it flowed quite smoothly because we all committed to a process. We had one guy at the end who wasn't, he had said he committed to the process But he would not relinquish his favorite solution, even though it was uh, not even a close horse race with the the one that we selected. And uh, his argument was that our selection process was flawed because we had scored a feature down that he said that his preferred solution was very strong at. And it turned out that he felt that solution was quite strong, but the vendor said it was quite weak. So he, in fact, uh, decided to argue with the vendor statements about their own product. And he got laughed out of the room because we'd all committed to the process. I learned another lesson then, which is one of the easiest ways to unite people who don't normally unite is to give them a common enemy. So that worked out too, although it was the less savory part of the solution.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think since you talk about software selection, there's a thought you've had that I've sent your column to, I don't know how many possible customers here. Tell us your feelings about RFPs. Is that a good way for an organization to select software?
1: (laughs) Oh, you mean request for pain?
0: Oh yeah, Uh, that's it.
1: Yes, (laughs) there we go. Yeah, I'm a consultant. The answer to any question is it depends. Is an RFP a good way to go? I think what it depends on is uh, a couple of factors. One is how well you understand your requirements and at what level of depth. If you understand your requirements, you can formulate them. Uh, Otherwise, the RFP process isn't really a bad way of getting to understand them a bit better. Where I think RFPs go off the rails is that when the person writing the RFP or the people writing the RFP in effect, want to be the vendor. They don't want to be the selector. They're smart people. They want to do the solution. They want to show that they know how to do the solution. And as a result, they overspecify and they don't give the vendor enough latitude to propose creative ways of solving the business problem. And I've been involved in pursuit teams where we've had RFPs with 500 or 1,000 detailed requirements. and. It's just a preposterous way of approaching this. What you want to do, I think, is explain to each of the candidate vendors, here's what we want to achieve, here's the business outcome we're looking for, here's the technical outcome that we're pointed towards, but tell us the best way of solving the problem. Don't respond to a thousand detailed questions. Uh, So are RFPs good or bad? I think like everything else in the world, It's possible uh, for them to be useful. It's possible for them to be horrible. And regrettably, I think there are more horror stories than there are successes.
0: I agree with everything you said, Bob. If I can summarize how I've often seen these as the receiver of them, it's clear they hired a consultant or someone internally to go around and take a survey from everybody in the organization and get their wish list. And the wishes may often be in conflict with each other, but nevertheless, it's, it's a list of what accounting may want, what procurement may want, what manufacturing might want that may or may not have any coherence. And what I'm afraid most people that respond to RFPs do is they're just going to check yes on all 500 requirements that yes, we do that maybe put in a few asterisks. And unfortunately, what ends up is everybody says yes. So it's a race to the bottom on who's going to offer the lowest price, whether in fact it ever solves any problems or not is irrelevant.
1: I trust that you have the good sense to tell everybody who sends you an RFP that this is far and away the best RFP you've ever read. I've been on both sides. That's of this. exactly
0: <laughs> it. Yes. I absolutely tell them that. Best RFP I've ever read, guys. Perfect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I, th- I think you're right on the money with that. Although there are a couple of other styles of RFP. I've been on, a, again, on both sides of this. I, I learned the hard way with when I put far too much effort in. But very often, what the RFP really is a request for free advice. And so I've shared our methods, I've shared our approaches. And then the response is, well, we decided to take this in a different direction and what the different direction is. Their in-house team is going to do this using the um, ideas they got from all the vendors they sent RFPs to.
0: Yeah, that has happened as well. Moving on. <laughs> the, <laughs>
1: okay, good plan.
0: Yeah. Back to the idea of a culture of honest inquiry. Another point you made that really sticks out, don't create disincentives for honesty. I think you and I talked about it briefly a few days ago, but the idea of bad news doesn't get better with age.
1: Yep. Well, okay. So let's take it this way. The oldest formulation of this is probably the most common, which is don't shoot the messenger. The messenger has gone through a lot of work to uh, get to talk to you and give you, get an honest take. And even if they're wrong, Unless you think that the reason that they're telling you something you don't want to hear is that they're stabbing somebody else in the back, which does happen. And here's the thing. If you're trying to hold people accountable, what that's saying is that you think they won't do a good job unless there's a threat of punishment hanging over their head like the sword of Damocles. And if you actually have hired people who only operate well under threat, what you ought to be doing is wondering why you hired people so badly because there's a uh, the idea of holding people accountable and uh, people taking responsibility are really polar opposites you want to hire people who take responsibility so that you don't have to hold them accountable and if you've hired people you have to hold accountable two things one Give them the opportunity to instead find a job they can succeed in. They deserve to have the chance to be successful. And two, hold yourself and your HR and your recruiters and everybody in the loop, hold them accountable for hiring people badly. What does this all have to do with the culture of honest inquiry? It's pretty straightforward. The folks who are taking responsibility understand that something is going wrong, something needs to be done about it. And if you do a proper job of root cause analysis, the chance that the fundamental problem is that you've got a bad person involved is uh, usually, um, first of all, it shouldn't be your default assumption. And second, it's probably not anywhere in the root cause. Usually the root cause is gonna be the systems you're using, the processes you're using, the tools you're using. When you shake it all down, uh, the idea that if somebody gives you bad news that somehow or other they should be held accountable to be punished for it just means you don't know how to handle situations well when something doesn't go your way.
0: That's actually very positive and inspirational. An organization I once worked for was notorious for Dead Dog Fridays where bad projects would only be discussed with management as late as possible on Friday afternoons, uh, which led to this vicious loop of unhappiness with all parties. And they clearly weren't following the guidance that you laid out there. What do you think about the role of grassroots IT in an organization? Some companies call it shadow IT or guerrilla IT. I think depending on the director of IT's personal values on this subject, but there is this idea that business users will go find a solution for themselves.
1: Shadow IT, do-it-yourself IT, guerrilla IT, IT IT rarely has flattering names for these. And the thing to understand about the mindset that leads to do-it-yourself IT and why it's in conflict with what most of us have been taught for most of the last 30 years at least is this fairly preposterous myth that IT should view the rest of the business as its internal customer. And so here's where things get very strange and sideways, is everybody from the CIO down in IT understands we're supposed to treat people like their customer. But if IT was running a restaurant, they would not say to a customer, no, you shouldn't have the ribeye, you should have the Sally, because frankly, you're looking a little pudgy. And as far as desserts are concerned, just take that uh, right off the menu. We don't think you should be eating dessert. because, In other words, IT would add more like dietician than restaurateur. If IT were running Home Depot, somebody would go into the drywall and IT would say, sorry, you can't buy drywall from us. We have to install it. Uh, so it, it starts with a very peculiar inconsistency because just looking at the metaphor, superficially you understand IT should not be in the business of saying no to their customers any more than any retailer says no to their customers. Here's the second thing, because metaphors are whatever you make of them. And it's easy to take a metaphor off a cliff anyway. But business users, business managers are better than IT is at knowing what they want technology to do. They're better at knowing how they want their part of business to run differently and better. IT is much better at designing and constructing uh, resilient, if you like, uh, robust, if you choose another word, sturdy, sturdy, perhaps, how to build things that are built to last. So really, when somebody in the business who is perhaps somewhat technology savvy, but isn't an IT professional, but is really good at making things work properly. When they go out, figure out how to solve the problem, build a solution out of Excel or license something, open source license something, software as a service, and make it work for their part of the business, they're doing the job of the IT business analyst coming up with something that demonstrably works exactly the way they want it to work. There ought to be a mechanism, and IT would be very well served to establish a mechanism for taking these um, do-it-yourself solutions and rewiring them, re-plumbing them to make them sturdier and more robust, while preserving all of the business logic that the business is built in and knows this is exactly what we needed to do. So my shot at shadow IT uh, is that you should, um, oh, by the way, one more piece of this, very, very often... When somebody licenses a software as a service solution, when somebody um, develops something to make their part of the business work better, the missing piece is integration. And integration is probably IT's last frontier. It's always hard. Even when it works properly, it's hard to maintain. I, I worked with a company once, they had more than a thousand batch interface jobs that had to run in precise sequence every night where things would go sideways, it's just a mess. So one of the things that IT can offer either during the do-it-yourself stage or as part of this process of taking do-it-yourself solutions and bringing them into the IT tent is addressing the integration challenges as well so that the business users who can't do integration. And as a result, they generate a whole lot of uh, rekeying from one system to another so that that piece of inefficiency also gets addressed.
0: That was fantastic, Bob. Thank you. Similarly, I don't think grassroots projects are good or bad. I think under the best of circumstances, they are solving some problems, scratching some itch that needed to be scratched. Even if they're not perfect, it often helps point the way for what the real solution is.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, that where IT really gets into trouble when it tries to stamp out shadow IT, where the IT really gets into trouble is IT is saying, we won't do it for you and we won't let you do it for yourself. So if you have a problem that could be solved by information technology, that's just too bad. We won't allow it. You need to use uh, ledger sheets and 10 key calculators or uh, screaming for mercy. Because IT is in the stamping out technology business. Who's that character in Dilbert uh, Mordak, the preventer of information technology? Yes. Sadly, it's the problem with Scott Adams. So much is preposterous. All you have to do is recognize it as preposterous and you got humor. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I think everybody in our business, when we look at a Dilbert cartoon, there's a uh, a bit of schadenfreude and we might recognize. People <laughs> in
1: there. Yeah, I think that there's a term.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. I couldn't agree more.
0: I I do want to ask a big question here. A lot of the people I think that are listening to this podcast are newer in their career and that's where they haven't maybe made all the same mistakes uh, or had the same experiences. I am curious, Bob, do you have a particularly good story from the School of Hard Knocks?
1: Oh, yeah. I have practically nothing but. You know what they say, the experience is just too late learning. Earlier in my career, I was one of five people who were collectively formed the organization's chief information officer, trying to experiment in uh, team-based leadership. Of course, we all hated each other. Oh, well, that's not fair. We We were all were bitter rivals, because all of us figured that it was like Highlander. And in the end, there would be only one, Of course, we wanted to be the one. And then we had a change in executive leadership that didn't believe in self-directed teams at any level, and certainly not at a management level. And the person to whom the, the five of us who were the CIO reported sat down with each of us to um, get a sense of IT and what should be done and all that. And I spent an hour with this um, lovely woman, very smart woman, sharing all of my thoughts on what I thought needed to be done for IT to be the organization that the company needed. What I didn't do was ask her one question about what she thought. The hard lesson, I wasn't the one selected, and my, my lesson there was pretty straightforward, which is, You don't impress people with how smart you are by talking. You persuade people that you're smart by listening to them. And if anybody who's starting out on their career, anybody who's finishing up their career for that matter, you are always going to sound smarter by asking good questions than you are by giving good answers.
0: A person I used to work for some time ago would always tell people that were new to the company, including me, this one bit of advice, and that was seek to be interested, not interesting. And, <laughs> and I found that to yep. be
1: pretty helpful. And close on for that first piece of advice is the second one, which it's a long story that I won't bore you with for a change of pace. But I found myself at a uh, round table uh, among a group of round tables, all of whom uh, within the table were supposed to come up with the one skill that would be most important, for folks who wanted to become it leaders and our table with yours truly i confess as an instigator established the single most important skill anybody could develop if they wanted to be in a leadership role was the fine art of sucking up <laughs> so, so <laughs> li- listen don't talk first but when you talk sucking up there's no nothing comes close
0: wow okay uh, i'm not I'm not sure where to go with that one, Bob.
1: (laughs) I think the best thing you could do is change the subject.
0: Yes. Let's do that. Wrapping it up. Again, for new people that might be starting out in their career, what are maybe the top five things they can do to keep a project on track and make it successful? And maybe there's five things that are destined for failure every time they're tried.
1: Oh, that's a hard one. Okay. So looking at this purely from a project basis. And so a few things, I don't know that I'll get to five. The first and single most important one is that you need to have an executive sponsor. And I say executive because they need to be able to make sure you get the resources that you need, which means they need to be able to spend money. The second the key thing is a good sponsor is not providing oversight. The good sponsor is a collaborator is a good sponsor has got to want the project to succeed at least as much as the project manager does deep in their bones so if you don't have the kind of sponsor who's fully committed to making the project successful and who doesn't want you to give them an honest accounting going back to an earlier subject of where the risks where the issues are what is going wrong what could go wrong if you're not dealing with somebody like that then you've got to sponsor a name only and the best thing you can do under those circumstances is run and hide under a desk someplace and hope they don't notice you for a while. Okay. Um, okay I, I guess I should give you at least two since you asked for five.
0: I'll, I'll take whatever you give, Bob.
1: Yeah, oh, you know, the hard part isn't to get me to talk, the hard part is to get me to stop talking. Number two, perhaps on your, how to make sure a project's successful list, And I've seen this go wrong a lot of ways. Um, and that is make sure that you have weekly status meetings, not status reporting, not status management, not status, uh, status readouts. The key thing about a weekly status meeting is that everybody on the team should, first of all, your plan should be down at a level of granularity that at the end of a week, you know whether somebody got what should be gotten done that week or not. So your tasks need to be defined at that level of granularity. And the reason you need a weekly status meeting and not status reporting and not emails with product status updates that the project manager can collect into reports and all the rest of that, is that you wanna be able to ask each member of the team, what were you supposed to start doing this week and did it start? What were you supposed to finish this week and did it finish? And if it didn't finish on time, what's the plan for getting back on track? And the key thing here is that each member of the team needs to say to the rest of the team whether they got done what was supposed to get done. It, <clears throat> that's the, the valuable piece of this because that applies peer pressure, which is far more effective in a team environment than any kind of management oversight, project management or other. One more, So I'll give you three out of five ain't bad. I'll take it. So the third one is, and again, this is no particular order, but when you're dealing with a project team, projects are hard. Easy projects are hard and they get more difficult from there. They start off looking great. You've got an inspiring idea. You've got something that's going to provide high value. The results are going to be very, very cool. Maybe industry leading and everybody's pretty excited, but Now I don't run marathons, but I imagine that if I did run a marathon, the first block would seem really, really great. There are all of these people and they're excited and it's New York and they're running through Central Park and wow. And after a block or two, I'm starting to feel tired. Now, not bad enough to be a problem, but there's gotta be a point at the marathon where you ask yourself, why the hell am I doing this to myself? Uh, Like I said, I don't run marathons, so I'm just speculating. But projects are like this. Teams start with enthusiasm, drive, excitement, energy. And over a period of time, when you get past the launch and you're in this day-to-day, just put one foot in front of the other. And there's no discernible progress because it's a big project. And what you're able to accomplish in a day or a week is a very small part of getting to the end. So where this is all going is that project teams have a fairly predictable set of stages they go through, starting with unenlightened optimism, progressing to dawning pessimism, and then you reach the pit of ultimate despair when you're way, way into this, but there's no end in sight, and you're just really bone tired. If you keep going, the team will reach a point of enlightened optimism when they can start to see the finish line, or at least envision it. And then there's one more danger spot, uh, and that I call the pre-completion doldrums. This is when you're nearly done. You've got 95% done, but you've got this nasty punch list of annoying little items. And as fast as you take items off the punch list, new ones seem to appear. And so when you're really close to the end, there's this other energy draining stage that tends to happen. The reason I'm telling you all of this, oh, and by the way, you finally get the success if you're doing this well. The reason I'm, I'm taking you through this is that project management is usually uh, described as a series of steps, these set of practices that you have to uh, apply. You've got a plan, you've got the sponsor, you've got um, weekly status meetings, people get their task assignments and so forth and so on. But a project is a very human enterprise. And one of the most important responsibility a project manager has <clears throat> is to recognize the emotional state of the team and the emotional state of the team members and take steps to provide energy when the energy seems to be draining away.
0: That's really good. One of my favorite books and, and this is obscure but it was one of Solzhenitsyn's novels called In the First Circle. And one of his characters was this engineer who's working on a project and he comes up with the iron law of the final inch. And the idea that the final part of whatever project is probably the most painful and difficult. And it seems very small to that idea of the punch list you're bringing up, Bob, but it's the most important part of the whole project. It's that finishing big. It's the difference between Getting across that finish line at the marathon on all fours versus getting across it on two legs and maybe being tired, yeah. but you're happy that you did it.
1: Yeah, just to put a bow on it, there's a character, Harry Newton. He was close to the closest thing there was to a celebrity in telecom circles. Now, Harry used to say that you just need to beware of the 90% solution. The 90% solution, he said, Anybody you hire, any employee, any place can take any idea and get it to 90% done. But the ones that can get that last percent done are very rare. When you're talking about the progress on a project, be very aware of 90% done because that last 10% is as big as that first 90% and probably then some.
0: Absolutely. I've seen exactly the same thing. It was great to have you on. I'd love to have you on in the future. And I definitely want to stay in touch and tell me when your next books are coming out too.
1: Absolutely. Listen, th- thanks again for inviting me. I hope, this, uh, I hope your um, subscribers find this interesting. If they don't, uh, well, this is now a half hour of their lives. they will never get back.
0: They can blame me.
1: That's even better.
0: Yes. Thank you again, Bob.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Talk to you soon.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Open Source Integrators, open source done right the first time. For information about enterprise-grade implementations of Odoo, Pyara, OpenShift, KeyCloak, or other technologies, you can find us at www.opensourceintegrators.com.